everybody. Welcome back to Rabbit Hole Happy Hour. Episode 3. Episode 3. I'm Mallory. And I'm Ashley. We're here to um, give you some more content, a new story, and uh, actually we're changing our format just a little bit going forward since we decided (laughs) that our episodes are like 500 hours long and maybe people don't want to listen to 500 hour long episodes. But um, so we're going to start alternating stories each week. And Ashley will be going first this week. Yes. Yes, I'm excited to tell this story. It's one that I've, that's always resonated with me. I heard about it like years ago. Anyway, we'll get to that. But first, we We wanted to do, yeah, we wanted to do some case updates. So in case you haven't seen it on any of our social media yet, there has been an autopsy report released for Mother God. And we're, we're not surprised about the cause of death at all. No. The cause of death written in the autopsy report, is that she died as a result of global decline in the setting of alcohol abuse, anorexia, and chronic colloidal silver ingestion. Which is, yeah, basically (laughs) what we thought, like, sounds like liver failure or heart failure, probably. Yeah. And she was claiming that she had cancer, right? Yes. So that's the other part of it. They did not find cancer in her autopsy (laughs) at all. Surprised. So... That was a lie. They also found a bunch of drugs in her system, which the first one was Tylenol, who cares, but she had like hydrocodone, hydromorphone, which is like Dilaudid and alcohol, obviously, and then two different types of THC, one which is like more potent than the regular kind. I don't know. I'm not a fucking... (laughs) I didn't even know there were more than one. Me neither. (laughs) But they also, in addition to her consuming a ton of colloidal silver, they found like a ton of bottles of different colloidal metals, titanium, copper, iridium, gold, indium, platinum, of course, silver, and then palladium. And these were all their like brand of colloidal metals. So we know that they were like handmade. Oh my God. Probably out of like scrap garbage so this is a a terrible testimonial to their products yeah it really is (laughs) this is not good advertisement (laughs) at all but yeah they just describe her as being made up with all the glitter and stuff they had put foundation actually on her face as well which was weird yeah because she was she was blue in the body cam footage so i mean yeah you couldn't even tell in the body cam footage but anyways so that's amy's update of her autopsy report and well when we were talking about this earlier you mentioned that they mummified her but i had completely forgot that they had to like i didn't know that part of mummifying was actually removing all their organs they did that i don't think they did that i think that they did that in the autopsy okay yeah okay but i was surprised that they were not just totally like shriveled and hard yeah you know like I mean, I guess it hadn't been, it had been like a month, but still, when you think of a mummy, you think they're just like bone dry and yeah. (laughs) There's definitely still some liquid involved (laughs) there. Oh my God. Anyways. (laughs) So yeah. And I have a case update on the Gwen Shamblin case. Our boy, Dan Greider from the YouTube channel, Probable Cause. (laughs) He reports that he'll have another video coming out soon where he tells the Yay. cause of the plane crash. Oh and that's God. that's what he does for a living. He investigates plane crashes and what Dude could possibly cause them. Is like a detective. He is a detective. And as I said in the last episode, HBO asked him to come down for their new episodes that they're working on. And he mentioned in his video that Natasha Pavlovich is completely free from any legal proceedings now because she was being sued by the church and Joe Laura for the custody of their daughter. But she's completely free from that because the church is out of money. Oh. Yes. That's crazy. (laughs) So he also mentioned Michael Shamblin. Shout him a light. Shout him a light. I don't know if that's Michael Shamblin or Joe Laura because they're both musicians. So oh, I don't remember. I but. think it's Michael Shamblin because I remember I googled it. Okay. Oh, well, maybe I didn't. Maybe I just heard it on their show. Yeah, it's like know. the background song of their YouTube channel, Life with Joe and yeah, their Gwen. their reality show, Life with Gwen and Joe. <laughs> anyway, Gwen's son, Michael Shamblin, the angsty son, mm-hmm. he's in the process of filing for a divorce 
which thank God, because he was hoeing around Remnant Fellowship for, you know, years. And he has a new girlfriend now. So sorry, ladies, he's off the table. I'm really sad. I really, really wanted to get (laughs) such a musical sensation. And as the church is crumbling, more and more leaders are feeding information to Dan, giving him the play-by-play of all the things going on within the church. So I'm sure he'll keep us updated. So shout out to Dan. Dan is awesome. I can't wait to see what else he's got under his sleeves. (laughs) So today I'm going to be talking to you about a case that has always resonated with me. It completely traumatized me when I heard it. Oh my God. I believe the first time I heard it was like two years ago. And I remember I was I was listening to a podcast. I think it was either Sword and Scale or Generation Y. But I was listening to a podcast. I was driving down the road. I was going to get my nails done. But I remember it so vividly because the like case where is, you were? Yeah. Oh my God. Because the case was so fucked up. That's crazy. And I just, like, it was blow after blow of information. Can't wait. So I'm going to be talking about the disappearance of Susan Powell. Does that sound familiar at all? Um, no, not really. (laughs) Okay. So I'd like to start by reading you an entry from her journal that police recovered from a safety deposit box at her job at Wells Fargo. Okay. Last will and testament for Susan M. Powell. Written, signed, June 28th, 2008. I am at work at Wells Fargo Investments. I bike to work daily and have been having extreme marital stress for about three or four years now. For mine and my children's safety, I feel the need to have a paper trail at work, which would not be accessible to my husband, Josh Powell. We've been to a church class about wills, and I know he can override me with the legal paperwork, but I want it documented somewhere that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage. Fuck. Can you imagine, like, the place that you have to be to even get to that point? I know. Where you gotta, like, write something that you can keep away from him so that if somebody finds it... It gets worse. Oh, So she goes on to say, He has threatened to skip the country and told me straight out, quote, If we divorce, there will be no lawyers, only a mediator, and I will ruin you. I will be ruined too, but you would be destroyed and your life would be over, and the boys will not grow up with a mom and dad, end quote. That guy sounds really nice. I hate him. She goes on to write, If something happens to me, please talk to my sister-in-law, Jenny Graves, my friend, Kiersey Hellowell. Check my blogs on MySpace. Check my work desk. Talk to my friends, coworkers, and family. It is an open fact that we have life insurance policies of over a million if we die in the next four years. Oh my God. Coworkers, family, and friends hear me say this occasionally. If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Take care of my boys. I want my parents, Judy and Chuck Cox, very involved and in charge of their lives. If they aren't there, my sister, name redacted, can hopefully be responsible. I love my boys. I live for them and choose not to cheat or do drugs because I wouldn't want to risk losing them. Susan Powell. And then in the margins, she writes, I love you, Charlie and Brayden. And I'm so sorry you've seen how wrong and messed up our marriage is. I would never leave you. 17 months later, Susan would vanish and never be seen again. Oh my God. Yeah. This is scary already. (laughs) So Susan Marie Cox grew up in Washington State. Uh, She had three sisters and she lived with her parents, Judy and Charles Cox. They were all part of the Mormon church, and she was known for her extremely strong faith. Her only dream in life was to be a wife and mom, and she also had career aspirations of being a cosmetologist. Mm -hmm. And her and her sister, they were both into beauty and they were both into animals, so they had this business idea that when they grew up, they could start a salon where you could bring your pet and you could both get, like your pet could be groomed and you could go and be pampered. Which was super cute. Like a spa while your pet's being groomed or something. Yes. So those who knew Susan described her as optimistic, bubbly, and extremely energetic. So her desire to get married was evident because she ended up getting married at age 19. Oh, wow. And she married Josh Powell. He was age 24. Okay. Josh grew up in Washington with his two brothers, two sisters, and his parents, Terry and Steve Powell. 
He was also raised Mormon, but his upbringing wasn't as idyllic as Susan's. It was actually quite the opposite. When he was in fifth grade, his parents' marriage began to crumble. When his mom, Terry, was pregnant with his youngest sister, she discovered a secret journal that Steve had been keeping where he was like just writing out all these sexual fantasies he had for another woman, like another man's wife that they knew. And Steve is her husband, correct? Steve is her okay. husband yeah. and Josh's dad. Okay. So she finds this Shit. journal and when she questions him about it, he's just like, yeah, I mean, if her husband were to die, I would bring her on as our plural spouse, oh, which right, is not Mormon. like, yeah. Well, that's not accepted in like mainstream, mainstream Mormonism, Mormonism yeah. at this time. Obviously, that's not what she wants to hear. No. Um, also in his journal, <laughs> he outlines how he's sexually attracted to their oldest daughter. Fuck that. What? And he's also starting to denounce Mormonism and the church. And all of this caused irreparable damage in their marriage. And they were divorced in 1992. Oh my God, dude. So the custody situation was traumatizing to say the least. And Josh's behavior reflected that. Tell me she got custody, please. Well, (laughs) (laughs) she got custody of the daughters and Steve had custody of the boys. So Steve had really, he would always like, put all his beliefs onto the boys and like, you know, play mind games with them. And they, mm-hmm. he got them to hate their mom and, and the two girls, the, the youngest was too young to make a decision. So she, the yeah. youngest daughter stayed with the mom, but the oldest daughter, like she just knew how wrong her dad was, but oh my God, it was so traumatic. There were reports that they would kidnap the kids from each other. What? Like, yeah. And Josh started acting out. He, killed his youngest sister's gerbils <gasps> and he also threatened his mom with a butcher's knife oh my god oh my god so he resented his mom and the family was split apart despite this tumultuous and traumatizing childhood josh went on to study at the university of washington he clung to his lds faith although he questioned it from time to time so josh was a super awkward dude and he uh, struggled a lot with the ladies He was the type of guy who was always, like, talking a mile a minute. He was a know-it-all, and he was, like, very pushy with relationships. Wouldn't let anybody else speak. No. Like, that kind of... He also refused to take no for an answer. So, girls just... He was friend-zoned quite often. Yeah. (laughs) I can believe it. So, he jumped from one crush to the next, leaving a wake of creeped-out girls behind him. He did manage to date one woman in college, but it ended after a year... This woman reported later on, after all was said and done with this case, she reported that Josh was insanely controlling and she broke up with him over the phone to avoid any further manipulation. Oh Oh my God. Yeah. They lived together for a brief time and they went to the Mormon church together and he told her to tell the congregation that they were married just so, you know, it was acceptable, but like he was very controlling and made her do things and... God. So he was beginning to think that he would never find the one for him until one day Susan showed up at an LDS event that Josh hosted at his apartment. Susan stayed late to help clean up. They stayed up all night talking and even shared a kiss. It was then he knew he had found the one. Uh, Like he immediately knew. And this is just because it's like, well, maybe the second girl that's never. Yeah said no to him (laughs) or hasn't said no to him so far (laughs) fuck yeah so less than two months later josh and susan were married on april 6th 2001 less than two months yeah that's too fast sorry (laughs) less than two months later they were married uh susan's parents were not thrilled about this they knew josh already because josh had tried to get with susan's older sister Oh my god, of course he did. And the story there was that he showed up on prom night, or it was like homecoming, like a dance. Mm -hmm. He showed up on prom night and he wanted to take out the oldest daughter, but she was already at prom with a date. And he refused to leave. What? He just like would not leave. And even when Susan's parents were like trying to hint like, she's not here, you just need to go. He just stared at them. 
at their house. Like, obviously, she's not there, and he's just standing there. He's just, just sitting down. Out. He just came and sat down, just and he's just hang chilling. Out with the parents. Yeah. What do you? What is your end game here? <laughs> and when they asked him, like, "Hey, she's not here. You, you should probably leave." He just stared at them. Oh my god! And then finally, Chuck Cox, Susan's dad, had to like get a little firm with him and was just like, "You need to leave." So they had that impression already of Josh. Um, They were not thrilled at all that she wanted to marry him. He was loud, overbearing, a know-it-all, and they begged her not to go through with it. But Susan loved Josh, and she was ready to start a family. It was her dream to just get married, have kids, and just, like, have a happy life. You don't do it in two months, though, baby. Josh wasn't good with money. He also wasn't good at holding down a job. Mm. marrying Josh meant marrying his massive debt as well. Shortly after their wedding, Susan and Josh moved to South Hill, Washington to move in with Josh's dad to save money and pay off some debt. During this time, Josh's creepo father, Steve Powell, developed an intense infatuation for Susan. Oh my God. What is wrong with these people? He always had his video camera on him and he, he would film her without her knowledge. He would film her with her knowledge. He was just always in her face with the camera. Oh my God. He would zoom in on her butt and legs and make creepy comments. He would follow her when she went to work or Costco and he'd hide out in the parking lot, just filming her straight to jail, sir. (laughs) And you can see some of this footage too. Oh my God, seriously? Yeah, there's a few documentaries. Um, I'll have to call them out at the end. But okay. yeah, so there was this one clip. She was getting into her car and her slip showed on her under her dress. Mm. And he's just like, she did that for me. Oh, like, no, she did not. Oh, you God. asshole. This, oh my God. He also would put mirrors under the bathroom door to watch her change. Oh my God. He stole her underwear and... Susan started to notice these things were going missing, but she figured that it was probably one of the nieces or nephews that were living in the house because Josh and Susan weren't the only people living with Steve. All his kids were, basically. Alina, all of them except the oldest daughter, Jennifer. Okay. So it was a full house, so she thought maybe it was one of the nieces or nephews playing a joke. Steve wound up setting up a recording studio in his house and started to play music, and he did this to impress Susan. He wrote over a hundred songs about her and oh they, my God. they are so fucking terrible. So is this after, I guess maybe just from the beginning when they started dating? Or? So this is after they got married. They okay. um, immediately moved in with Steve so they okay. could start paying off debts gotcha. and Josh could finish college and mm-hmm. find a job. So they needed to save money. So they moved in with Steve. God. So I have a song here if you're interested. Oh, I'm interested. <laughs> I will play you a short little bit so you can get an idea of the caliber of work (laughs) Steve had. I'm sure it's excellent. Oh my god. We'd love to do that. So cough up my bail. Wow. Wow, that was incredible. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so his his pseudonym that he made up for himself when he wrote music was Steve Chantry. What? That sounds like a country music artist or something. And also that song reminds me of like Tim and Eric. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Uh, David Liebhart. David Liebhart. Yes. (laughs) It sounds exactly like one of the songs he would sing. Uh Uh-huh. So Susan knew Steve was weird, but she wasn't aware to what extent. Oh, God. It wasn't until Susan was stuck in the car alone with him that she realized just how serious this was. He secretly recorded their conversation as he drove her home one evening after they dropped Josh off at yet another potential job opportunity. He professed his love for Susan and even tried to kiss her. Oh, my God. She was fuming. Yeah. Um, so the audio is available and you can feel the tension. Like she, she tried to seem like she was just like brushing it off and her reaction was just pure damage control. 
Oh, she was trying to get out of it smoothly. Yeah, she was stuck in the car with this guy. It's her father-in-law. And she's shocked. She's embarrassed. She's just grossed out. So she's just kind of like, okay, yeah. um." Oh, no. But then he's going to be like, oh, she actually liked it. She did tell him that he just needed to be her father-in-law. Like, like she did not want any part of that. She was so upset after he dropped her off. When Josh got home, she told him about it. And she, she said, we have to leave. We have to move out. We just, yeah, I can't live with this creep any longer. Mm -hmm. Susan even told her family and friends about this. And Mm -hmm. they told her she should go to the police because he all the time was touching her and, there was one point where he asked to give her a massage and he was like trying to touch her and just like super creepy stuff. So now Susan, we know why his son is the way he is. <laughs> exactly. Ugh. So uh, Josh and Susan wound up leaving and moving to Utah to start their lives with a clean slate. Despite the fresh start, buying their first home and being away from Steve, their marriage continued to be strained. Josh couldn't hold down a job, and he was the type of guy that always thought he knew better than everyone else. Like, so he he thought that he always knew better than his boss, and he always got fired from every job. The and things can't be him. Yeah, he's... <laughs> I hate him so much. Yeah, I'm not kidding. I hate him and his father. Ugh. Things were stressful for Susan. Her dreams of being a cosmetologist and opening her own business were out the window. She was now babysitting her man-child husband. So Susan takes a job at Wells Fargo so she could, you know, bring in some money. And amidst all the financial trouble and all the issues in their marriage, Susan found out she was pregnant. Josh (sighs) seemed to be excited and Susan thought he'd be a good father because he had this pet bird that he babied. So she thought, oh, he'll (laughs) he'll surely be a great dad. I think it was just wishful thinking. Yeah, Um, I agree. But... He seemed excited nonetheless, and Susan's commitment to her marriage was renewed. Their first son, Charlie, was born in 2005, and two years later, Susan gave birth to their second son, Brayden. They both adored the boys, but the marriage was not improving. Josh decided to become an independent real estate agent, and he took out $80,000 worth of ads in the Yellow Pages. What? But he ended up refusing to pay... Oh, my God. And he did that because he cited there was a typo in the ads. But in reality, he had just lost interest in being a real estate agent. So he just didn't pay. So Yellow Pages came after him with a lawsuit. Yeah. But Josh's response was to sue them back and then deliberately go into bankruptcy. He racked up massive amounts of debt on Susan's credit. He needs psychiatry. I don't even know how she stayed this long. And you know, the reason is in Mormonism, mm-hmm. marriage is eternal. It's not just forever. It's yes. eternal. Like you go and like live on a planet with your your spouse or some crap like after you die. After you die, your your souls are still one yes. and it's just oh very my. frowned upon to get a divorce, but as she told her friends and family these things, they were supportive of her leaving because mm-hmm. It was a bad situation. I hate that she felt she couldn't leave because of her faith, which she took very seriously. So in April 2007, the Powells filed for Chapter 7, listing more than $200,000 in debt, which didn't even include their mortgage or their car. Oh, God. Josh was controlling before, but now he was completely off the rails. He sold their second car to save on gas and made Susan bike to work seven miles each way. Oh my God. He wouldn't even let her use the car. He only gave her a certain amount of money a week, like a ridiculously small amount, and she had to make do with that amount for groceries for the entire family. But Josh felt the need, or he felt free to buy whatever the hell he wanted for himself. He bought himself his own food that he liked. Oh my God, Um, I was about to say, does he not care about what he eats no he just goes off and eats whatever the hell he wants oh my god dude oh and he changes all the passwords on their banking and he doesn't let her he gives her the money so she can't access any more money oh my god um would i would be on a rampage (laughs) this already guys this is a form of abuse yeah i know when you think about abuse you typically think of physical abuse but this is definitely 
an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. It even affected their children. So he got mad at Susan once for giving each of her boys a hot dog. And he said that next time they needed to split a hot dog. Oh my God. That they didn't need their own. And it would be a waste of food because they were just going to poop it out anyway. No, you absorb the nutrients before you poop them out. They're, that's why you eat. Like, that's... You poop too, Josh. Yeah. Everyone poops. That's how the human body works. I don't even fucking understand that logic. It, that's because he's an idiot. His children were malnourished, the doctors oh told God. them. Oh my God. They didn't oh get enough God. to eat. And neither did Susan. And her friends from church and people would oftentimes sneak her food, bring her yeah, because food. Because if she's having to bike seven miles each way to wherever yeah she's probably burning like a lot more calories than she's intaking and well he also would take advantage of ridiculous deals and he so they stocked up on like canned chili and so that's all she ate for months and so she would like trade at work with people just to have ramen noodles which isn't probably better but like she just wanted to change something different yeah so while all this is going on and susan is trying to make things work Josh squanders whatever money that came in on RC cars, computers, cameras, tools, and dumb fucking toys. Josh even bought 3,000 pounds of wheat. 3,000 pounds of wheat? Which they kept in their garage or basement. To make bread? I have no idea. Why? I have no idea. (laughs) It does seem like some sort of, not to be like a armchair psychiatrist or anything but it does seem like some kind of compulsion yeah or maybe he's he like a had a spending prepper he had a crap. spending problem like oh. he bought it there's footage of them at their house and the amount of stuff that he owns Ugh. oh my god yeah so susan is constantly venting to her friends and family about josh and people start to get tired of it yeah the marriage is truly abusive. The children are malnourished. In most reports, like on a lot of podcasts that I heard about this and articles and things, documentaries, they don't fully describe just how controlling he is. As I continue diving deeper into this, it's just like on a completely different level. He would withhold sex and affection from her to control her. He would withhold money He would berate her for spending money on their family. He told her to grow her own food in the yard. He would prohibit her from driving their vehicle. He would have temper tantrums, throwing a pot of spaghetti on the floor when he didn't get enough attention. Oh my God. He played mind games with the children, trying to alienate them from Susan. And Susan didn't take it all laying down. She fought back. Um, She confided in friends, but ultimately... She wanted to make it work. She knew it was bad, but she wanted to make it work. Yeah. She's probably just constantly thinking about her kids. Yeah. It was bad for the boys. And she gave Josh deadlines for changes. She threatened divorce. And to that, he responded, over my dead body. Jesus. And it was just very threatening. So she was afraid Josh would do something to hurt her or the children. Mm. Susan started secretly meeting with a divorce attorney to weigh her options. They advised her to take inventory of all their assets in a video for reference. So Susan follows that advice on July 29th, 2008. And the video is haunting. She's clearly had it. You could tell she's just so defeated in the video. She's going room to room, showing all of Josh's possessions and toys, thousands and thousands of dollars of computer parts, tools, toys, cameras, The house is jam-packed with shit for Josh. Oh my god. Nothing belonged to Susan, but a little bit of makeup and her bike. Wow, that's crazy. I know. On December 6th, 2009, Susan invited her friend Giovanna Owings over to help her with a blanket she was knitting for her son Brayden. Josh mentioned she could stay for dinner. He was cooking, which was extremely rare um, and out of the ordinary and a red flag to me personally, but he planned to make breakfast for dinner. So he made pancakes and eggs, and while Giovanna and Susan were working on knitting, he brought them their plate. A little while after eating, Susan said she was tired and not feeling well, and she needed to lay down. So she got up and went to take a nap, and Giovanna took that as her cue to leave. So that was the last time anyone outside of the house saw Susan. Oh no, oh no. 
a winter storm had moved in on the morning of December 7th. The roads were terrible, and Susan hadn't dropped the boys off at daycare. (laughs) Debbie Caldwell was the daycare provider and a close friend of Susan's. She called to make sure everything was all right, but she couldn't reach Susan on her cell phone or at work. She tried Josh and had the same result. Debbie decided to call Susan's emergency contact, Jennifer Graves. Jennifer Graves is Josh's older sister. Okay. The one who has nothing to do with Steve Powell. Got it. Jennifer, her mother lived with her at the time. So Josh's mother also lived with Jennifer at this time. So Jennifer and mother Terry rushed to the house while trying to get a hold of Josh and Susan. Their knocks go unanswered and they decide to call 911. Police arrive and are given permission to break a window to enter the house. Everyone feared they'd find the family dead in their beds from carbon monoxide poisoning. Mm-hmm. But there was no one there. So upon entering, they noticed there was music blaring in the living room. There were two large box fans in the living room as well, blowing on a wet spot on the carpet and on the sofa. Uh... The sofa was wet and had clearly just been cleaned. Susan's purse and her snow boots were left behind, something she would never leave the home without. But her pink Motorola cell phone was missing. Hmm. So was the minivan, and there were no tracks going out of the driveway because there was fresh snow that had fallen. Did they find anything of Josh's? or No, they didn't mention finding anything of Josh's. Just the minivan was gone, her phone was gone, everything else seemed to be in place except for those fans blowing on the carpet and the couch, which had been cleaned. Yeah, okay. So the local police put together a search team, and Detective Ellis Maxwell arrived at the house. Around 5 p.m., Jennifer received a call. It was Josh. He (laughs) sounded off and was wishy-washy about where he was and when he'd be home. He let her know he'd be there soon and hung up quickly. The detective called Josh from Jennifer's phone and told him he needed to get home right now. His wife was missing. So Josh finally arrives at the house at 6.40 p.m., and Detective Maxwell appears at his car. Immediately, he notices that Josh looks unbothered by the media circus and the police that are outside of his home. Mm. And he didn't seem concerned at all that his wife was missing. This sounds like Chris Watts. I know, it really does. It does. (laughs) Because he shows up, everyone's like, come on, come home. Yes. And just chill, like no, no panic, nothing. Fuck. Yep. So the detective is like, where could she be? And he's like, oh, she, she must be at work. They're like, dude, she's not at work. We checked her work. We she's, not know at work. she's not at work. So. And he kept mentioning, like, she'd go to work. But at the same okay. time, they're like, why aren't you at work? And he's like, um, well, I thought it was Saturday and oh, today sure. was Sunday. And he's like, so why would, if you thought that, why would Susan be at work? And yeah, so nothing made sense. And he was just like all over the place. The detective immediately spots Susan's pink Motorola phone in the front seat of his car. Oh. He asks about it, and Josh claimed that he accidentally put it in his pocket the night before when he was looking for a number in Susan's phone. But then why is he calling her over and over on his way home from wherever he was? Yeah. There were calls to Susan's phone from him. From him. So he's just sitting in the car with her phone calling her, like, Uh hey, babe, I'm outside of your work. I'm... Because he stopped by our work before he even headed home. Cover story. Exactly. So he told the detective that he had taken the boys night camping at Simpson Springs, which is about two hours away from where they live. They had left. Where are the boys? They were in the car, too. Oh, they were in the car. Okay, okay, okay. They left at midnight or so. Can Who takes their kids? At midnight? (laughs) Who takes their four and two-year-old camping no. At midnight. They're sleeping. Two hours away. Then you get there at 2 a.m. Um, he said what? the last time he saw Susan, she was either in bed or getting ready for bed. Susan would never let them leave at that time. No, that's that's crazy. The odd timing and bad weather immediately raised suspicions. The police had Josh follow them to the station for questioning. It was just a whole bunch of I don't knows indirect answers, silence, and he was really distracted with the boys because they were also at the station. Mm -hmm. He wasn't concerned at all about Susan being missing, and he was more concerned that the police broke his window to get into the house. (sighs) He claimed, the daycare worker had a key to my house. Why did you have to break the window? He was 
Not not at the top of the priority list here no. right now, buddy. So they only questioned him for about an hour and let him go on the condition that he show up for a scheduled interview tomorrow morning. Mm. So the police concluded they didn't have enough probable cause to obtain a search warrant to search the house and the van at that time. But in hindsight, Maxwell, Detective Maxwell wishes he had just gone through with it anyway. Yeah. Because now Josh is leaving the police station with his van going home. Yeah, that seems like an oopsie. That is definitely an oopsie. Like a big fuck up on their part. Yeah. When Josh got home that evening, neighbors reported seeing the light in his garage on all night long. They also heard a lot of noise coming from the house. The next morning, Josh's sister comes over to watch the boys so Josh can get to his interview. Jennifer told the police that he was just running around cleaning, doing laundry, cleaning out his car... Um, and Josh ended up being over three hours late for his police interview. What could have been so important besides covering up evidence? Oh yeah. (laughs) Just, just cleaning up any evidence and destroying evidence. Yeah. Like why wouldn't they come and get him at that point? Seriously. I mean, three hours is a long time. That is just, I mean, I know it was like the first 24 hours she'd been missing or so, but it's such a sketchy situation. Yeah. And they already were very suspicious of him, it sounded like. Yeah. So they ask him about Susan's phone. Why was it with him in the van? There was no reason for him to have her phone if he was calling her and leaving her messages. Again, he had no concern or remorse. Oh, the day prior, the detectives had taken a picture of his hands, just Mm -hmm. which is probably just part of the drill. And he had some nicks and cuts on his hands, but he was flipping out about the detective taking pictures of his hands yesterday. So I guess he had like fixed them up or I don't know, put lotion on them. And he's like, take a picture of them today. And he like kept saying, you need to take a picture of them today. So you can actually see, he's like, my hands were just dry. And he was like, would not stop looking at his hands. He was being super suspicious. That is so weird. Of all the things to fixate on. (laughs) When um, the detective read him his rights, he got extremely nervous. Basically, he was just reading him his rights so he could ask, go on to ask him more involved questions. At that point, Josh said he wanted to leave, and he said he needed a couple days to think about whether or not he'd want to help them with the investigation. And the detective is like, your wife is missing a couple of days to think about whether you're going to help us? Like, yeah, no. No, that's not going to fly. You should be a little more concerned than this, bud. So little did Josh know... Charlie was talking to a family counselor at the same time so they could get more insight into what had happened when they were gone. Yeah. Charlie told the counselor that mommy, daddy, and Brayden had all gone on the trip and that mommy didn't come back. Oh my God. He claimed, in quotes, mommy decided to stay where the pretty crystals were. They looked into this and they thought, it could possibly be an area called Dugaway Geode Beds, which is oh. some somewhat near where they said they had gone camping. They looked. They didn't find anything. Damn. But with that information, with Charlie saying that his mom was in the car and went on that trip with him and didn't yeah. come back, they felt they had probable cause to search the house and the van. Yes. So as Josh was trying to leave, he was asked to wait as officers obtained a search warrant for his house. They had started searching his van as well. So Josh was waiting in the lobby for about 15 minutes, and then he left. He called a taxi, then went to the Salt Lake City Airport, where he rented a Ford Focus. He put 806 miles on it in 16 hours. What? So the theory is that Josh drove to Washington to meet up with his father, Steve, or maybe the two of them had gone off to move Susan's body. Oh. Neither of them had any activity on their cell phones at that time. And Steve had also called out of work that day. Mm. Oh my God. (laughs) The next day, police arrived at the Powells with a search warrant. They discovered drops of blood beside the sofa, the same one that had recently been cleaned. And it was Mm. Susan's blood. Oh my God. They also discovered burnt debris that was found hidden in the van. They tested it and couldn't figure out what it was. But there's a theory surrounding this. There's a podcast that I listened to that, which was amazing. It's called Cold. Mm-hmm. Um, their first season is all about this missing persons case. 
And the host, Dave Colley, has a whole theory about what this could be. He thinks it's potentially the murder weapon, which he thought it was some type of tool, like some type of power tool that Josh had used because it was missing. Mm -hmm. And he took the same power tool and burned it and it ended up looking exactly like the pieces. Oh my God. So guys, if you're interested in this case at all, you have to listen to this podcast. It goes into mega detail and it has tons and tons of audio journals of Josh and Steve. It has so much content. So the police are continue with their search and colleagues of Susan point police to her desk at Wells Fargo. They discover Susan's safety deposit box with her will. She was planning to leave in the spring if things hadn't improved. While police and loved ones searched, Josh cashed out Susan's retirement fund. Oh my god. He hired a lawyer, he got fired from his job, and he took the kids out of daycare. On December 16th, he was named a person of interest, and at this point he flees, or travels to Washington to stay with his dad for the holidays with his kids. Mm-hmm. Friends of the Powells were shocked that he would leave during the search to find his missing wife. Nothing about what he's done has made sense, though. Like, No. I mean, it's, I would be shocked, too, honestly, but it's well, just if like... They're giving him the benefit of the doubt, and, you, and yeah. he leaves. He just leaves out of state. Yeah. When his wife's missing, just to enjoy the holidays? like Yeah, no. Sorry. Josh came back on January 6th to pack up his stuff so he could move back in with his father permanently. And at this time, Josh completely abandoned the search and blew off all the police interviews. Oh my god. That year, friends and family of Susan Cox Powell launched social media campaigns to broaden their search. They canvassed the neighborhood. They put out missing people posters. They... Tied purple ribbons, which purple was Susan's favorite color. They tied purple ribbons everywhere in the neighborhood. And volunteers searched in places of interest, including Simpson Springs, where Josh claims he took the boys that night. And police had started secret searches in abandoned mines. The reason they were searching abandoned mines is because at a Christmas party, a work Christmas party, Josh was accompanying Susan, and he was telling people that they were talking about like CSI or some crime show. And he was Mm -hmm. like, well, if I killed someone, this is where I would hide the body. I'd hide it in a mine shaft because they're unstable and you'll never be able to search it because it's too dangerous. Oh my God. And so that's why they were searching all these abandoned mines. And she wanted, mom wanted to stay with the pretty crystals. Yeah, exactly. Oh God. I didn't even like put that together. Oh my God. Unfortunately, they couldn't find her. The Coxes attended several press conferences and did a million interviews. They even started a nonprofit, the Susan Cox Powell Foundation, to raise awareness for missing people. But still, no Susan. Meanwhile, Josh and Steve were making up their own theories about what happened to Susan. They ended up putting up a website where they published hate speech toward the Cox family. Oh my god. They posted theories basically dragging Susan's name. They claimed that she ran off to be with another missing man from the area named Stephen Kosher. What? He had recently gone missing around the same time as Susan. And according to Josh and Steve, they flew off together to go to Brazil to live happily ever after. Yeah, it's a little too convenient. And she loved her kids. and (laughs) She would never leave her kids. Never, yeah. Obviously, this was bullshit. The claim was debunked and Kosher was never found. So Steve, Josh's father was going around telling whoever would listen that he had Susan's childhood journals. How did he get those? I guess she had left them behind when she was staying with him. Oh, yeah, because they used to all live together. Or he took them because he's a perv. That's so weird. But he said that they would contain a lot of answers. He told the media that he intended to publish them. And this Um. is literally all the police needed to get a search warrant of his house because that's evidence. Oh. If it contains answers, he was going to have to turn those over to police. So they obtained a search warrant and they raided Steve Powell's home. It was October 25th, 2011, when officials raided his home looking for evidence. Mm -hmm. And I told you previously, his two other sons, well, all three of his sons lived there. Josh, John, and Michael, I believe. And then his sister, Alina. They all live there. They're all adult children at this point. 
And while they were raiding the home, they noticed one of Josh's brothers who was, he did have a lot of problems. He had gallows set up in his bedroom with like a noose. What? He also had a poster of a woman with a knife going up her vagina and out of her stomach. Jesus. And this is where Josh had brought his kids to live. Yeah, great, excellent. Why in the Why the fuck would you have a noose with gallows in your bedroom just for like funsies? I, the family was truly truly disturbed. They were so weird. You, like I don't think we'll ever know the extent of ha- the depravity of this family. Yeah. But the brother who was mentally ill also would run around the house in diapers and like it was just like a terrible oh environment for for the sons to live. But yeah. that wasn't even the worst thing they found. So they were looking for evidence relating to Susan, but instead mm-hmm. they found countless hard drives filled with illicit videos and pictures of minors. Oh God. They found more than 1,000 videos of women and girls, including Susan, and also as young as eight years old, being filmed without their knowledge in various degrees of undress, including completely (sighs) nude. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Some of the images showed the victims taking baths, showering, using the toilet, and these videos were all made by Steve. And most of the videos were of his neighbor's children. Oh, no. So he was spying on them from his house. Oh, no. What a fucking creep. I hate this man. So I have pulled up here a screenshot from one of his videos where he's filming Susan. And it shows him peeking through some blinds. She's just unaware of him being there. And the caption underneath says, he's saying, I'm in a perpetual state of turned on. He would film her and just like say disgusting things and like it was it's literally the creepiest thing I've ever seen in my how, life. How are you not self-aware when you are a person that's doing these kinds of nasty things? Like I don't understand. He it. is self-aware because in his journals he says that he's disturbed, that he has an obsession. Oh. He says that he says all of this like he knows it's wrong. Fuck, and he just keeps doing it because yeah, he can't stop her. Yeah, because he's evil. Yeah, that's they, fucked. So they also found videos of Steve secretly stalking Susan and making creepy comments. Steve would also film himself masturbating as he relived no. as he relived encounters with Susan. So he would sit down <laughs> at his bed and just talk about the day and about Susan and about how beautiful she looked and about things that he noticed or things like he took out of context and was like building this fantasy in his head. And he would like slowly be getting undressed as he's talking about this. No, Um, I'm disgusted. It was just completely vile. Is this one of them? Yes. This is just a screenshot from one of those videos. And he looks too happy. He was, well, he is very happy. (laughs) If that wasn't enough, officers found a locker in Steve's room and when they opened it, they discovered seven notebooks with more than 2,300 pages written about Susan. Holy shit. Just about how in love with her he is. About oh my God. How beautiful she is. All the things that he would love to do with Susan and 2,300 pages. I've never written that much in my life. <laughs> they found Ziploc bags filled with her underwear. They were labeled and dated. Her used oh tampon God. applicators. Oh my God. Her fingernails, etc. There's cotton balls with nail polish, pads. Fuck. Um, he was, so he'd just go into the trash and like collect all of these oh pieces God, that, so that had anything to that do with so Susan. Nasty. And they're all categorized, <laughs> bagged, and labeled. Ew. He had been collecting this stuff when she and Josh lived with him. So after they found all of that stuff, They arrested him on charges of child pornography and voyeurism. At this point, Susan's parents filed for custody of her children because what the fuck? These these boys are living with a pedophile, a psychopath, a father who most likely killed their mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a Washington court eventually granted Cox temporary custody of the boys ruling that Josh would have to move out of Stephen's home if he wanted to regain custody. So Josh rented a house in South Hill. Of course. But courts found that he was still living with his father. Oh my God. So he just rented the house just as a cover. 
Yeah. Why? Why? I don't know. Why do you want to live with your daddy so much that I don't get it? I I I don't know. Like, what does it mean? Like, what is what are they doing? Are they like needing to be in constant contact to plan yeah. things? I mean, all their phones were tapped at this oh, point. They had yeah. tapped all their phone lines, and so the judge ordered Josh to get psychological evaluations because they found a lot of disturbing content on his computer. On Josh's on computer. Josh's computer. Like animated porn, like SpongeBob and Kim Possible, and but like a lot of it, stuff? like a lot of kid cartoons, but it was made yeah. into porn. And then he also found a lot of like animated incestual porn with children and stuff like that. Oh my god! And they couldn't convict him of a crime because it's animated. No children were being harmed, but mm-hmm. someone who shows interest in that type of content obviously should not be the custody of children should not be in their favor. Right. Yeah. So they ordered him to get some psychological help and he was only allowed to see the kids under supervised visitation. And that Mm. typically is held in a government building. Um, Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So he would go and the children would come and they'd meet in a room and they could have their visit supervised. Oh, okay. But, you know, there's lots of families there having their visits Mm -hmm. and a lot of people felt uncomfortable because they knew who Josh Powell was and there there was media around him all the time. Yeah. So they gave him a special circumstance where he could visit with the boys at his home, but it had to be supervised. Are you serious? Yes. That seems the wrong way to go. I know, right? It's going backwards. A lot of mistakes definitely made. On February 5th, 2012, social worker Elizabeth Hall picked up Charlie and Brayden from their grandparents' house for their supervised visit with their father at his South Hill home. They pulled into the driveway and the children bounded out of the car in excitement. They rang the doorbell and Josh opened the door. The children ran inside. Josh sneered at Elizabeth and slammed the door in her face. When he slammed the door, she got a whiff of gasoline. (gasps) She knocks and knocks and she hears crying. Oh, shit. And she gets a sinking feeling that something is like completely wrong and she can't get Josh to open the door. Oh, no. She runs back to her car and calls 911. Yeah. You can listen to the recording of this 911 call and it's the most infuriating 911 call I've ever heard in my life. The operator is extremely, like, sarcastic and rude. Um, Are you serious? He's totally incompetent. She is clearly explaining that she is the supervisor to a visit yeah. with the kids, with Josh Powell. And he, like, asks her the same questions over and over. And he's like, wait, so you're the supervisor? You can't supervise yourself. He's, like, an idiot. Oh, my God. And she is being so patient. And he's like... I need to know where you are, ma'am. And she doesn't know the address. I mean... Is this at the rental house? Yes, at the rental house. So she has to dig through her stuff to find this address. Mm -hmm. And she's like, can't you just use GPS to find me? And he's like, no. And she's like, like trying to find this address. And she finds it. She gives it to him. And she's like, so are they on their way? Yeah. And he's like, ma'am, they need to get to more life-threatening emergencies first. She's like, this is a life-threatening emergency. Yeah. This man doesn't have custody of his children for a reason. Right. Uh, she's like, I'm afraid of their for their safety. There was the smell of gasoline. He slammed the door in my face. Mm-hmm. The kids were crying. Fuck. She has to call again and repeat the same information. So she hangs up, and immediately after she hangs up, the house blows up. <gasps> what? He blew up the house with Charlie Holy and Brayden inside. Was he in there? Yeah, he was in there. Fuck, dude. Oh my god, I cannot believe that. So I have a picture pulled up here of the home. It's basically just a frame. Yeah. It's completely destroyed. There's nothing left. By the time fire and police arrive, the fire is out of control and (sighs) there's no way they, they can save them. Oh my god. The official cause of death for Josh, Charlie, and Brayden was carbon monoxide poisoning. But the coroner noted that the two boys had significant chopping injuries on their heads and necks. (gasps) A hatchet was retrieved beside Josh's body, and it is believed that he attacked them before the smoke and fire engulfed them. Oh my god. Oh my god! He fucking 
chopped his kids. Why? This evil. Dude, yeah. Is evil a genetic trait? Because it really seems like it at this point. <laughs> it really does. Friends, family, and Josh's lawyer received brief emails from him simply saying, sorry, goodbye. And Holy it was shit. ruled a murder-suicide. Oh when God. authorities notified Steve, who was in jail, oh, yeah. he didn't seem upset at all. He refused to answer any further questions about Susan's whereabouts going forward. So he was not going to help at all. So we've lost Josh. Mm-hmm. And now Steve is not speaking at all about Susan. Almost exactly a year later, on February 11th, 2013, Josh's brother Michael jumped to his death from the roof of a parking garage. Oh my god. I didn't really get into Michael a lot, but he was suspected to have been involved in Susan's disappearance. Oh, it, so he might have figured he was the next target. Yeah, I mean, the heat was on with him. I'll go on to explain this a little bit deeper, but... It was discovered that he paid to have his broken down car towed to a salvage yard two weeks after Susan went missing. Police recovered the 97 Ford Taurus and conducted forensic testing. A cadaver dog indicated that the presence of human decomposition was found in the trunk, (gasps) but DNA results came back inconclusive. Oh, man. Investigators visited Michael in Minneapolis that October to interview him, but he refused to answer any questions. He was totally uncooperative. Eight months after Josh and the boy's death, Michael was involved in a legal dispute over Josh's life insurance. Josh had basically put his brother Michael as the beneficiary of his $3 million life insurance policy. And so during this legal dispute, during the deposition they start questioning him about, have you ever had a Facebook account? Mm-hmm. And he lies under oath saying, yeah, I had one at one point. And they're like, was it you? Was it under your name? Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, I did it when I was running for some government position. But in actuality, Michael and Josh were both, they both made a Facebook profile of a woman. Oh, forget her name exactly but it was like misty something and the purpose of this account was they joined all the susan was missing facebook groups and they were basically just like taking the because they were private groups they were taking the temperature of what was going on with the investigation and also planting things to get them off the case or like to divert them from looking at them and also trying to like save the reputation and stuff like that so jesus They found that the account was logged in in Minneapolis, where Michael lived, and also in Washington, where Josh lived. So they were both going on that and trying to divert people from them being the suspects. Mm -hmm. So he lied under oath about that. So that was another thing that was, like, really weighing. The police were on him, like, to figure out what was going on. So I assume that's probably why he killed himself. Oh, my God. Stephen Powell served seven years in prison for voyeurism and child pornography, and then he was released July 11th, 2017. Seven years? Mm-hmm. Only? Yep. Mm. He died a year later from natural causes. Oh, wow. Maybe all the stress of all the bullshit his whole family has put him, not put him through, but he's put himself through. Yeah. So, basically, anyone who knew anything about this disappearance is gone unless his sister Alina right or his other brother John know something but they're still looking for it's just like incredibly sad and Charles and Judy Cox the mother of Susan they just seem like the most sweet people on the earth like they have their foundation they're very very much involved in you know the community of finding other missing people um Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's that's the story of Susan oh and her God. boys. That was awful. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I know. no, no, it's okay. It was it was a good one. That, that that made it a good one. That was, but holy shit, what a like just how unlucky Susan was to get with this guy in particular. Yeah, but I guess if it wasn't her, it might have been somebody else too. Although I don't know if Josh was truly that much of an idiot then. 
maybe nobody else would have ever fallen for him. <laughs> yeah, and there are so many details that I, I left out that just like make it all the more worse, unfortunately. Yeah, I want to listen to that podcast. Um, so yeah, my sources, there were a ton. There's obviously a ton of podcasts about this case. And then the main one I listened to, it's called Cold. And the first season is all about Susan Powell's disappearance. And it is A-plus detective work. They have never awesome. before seen or heard footage like the blog is also amazing josh has some audio diaries which who the fuck does audio like, diaries yeah, except a serial killer yeah he sounds like a serial killer too yeah. his voice oh my god well in his overall behavior <laughs> yeah so that podcast is amazing and then i also i actually read a book about this it's Damn. called if i can't have you by greg olson and rebecca morris it was so good really? like i'm almost done with it but very very in depth and it it's like very i don't know it like really is close with the cox family like so it's almost like as told by the cox family i don't know how to explain it but it's it's really good there's a lot of detail um salt lake tribune was another source Deseret News was another one, which is uh, another newspaper in Salt Lake City, and Wikipedia, of course. So those were my sources. So I wanted to just briefly put this out here. If any of this behavior sounds familiar, or if you're experiencing or know someone experiencing this kind of treatment, um, do not hesitate to seek help. I know it would be, I can't even imagine the, Mm-mm. how difficult that would be, but um, help is out there. The you're de- not alone. Right. And it's not just physical violence. It could be... Yeah, psychological. Any kind of... Withholding like he was doing. Right. Abuse. Yep. So thehotline.org or call the number 1-800-799-SAFE. And everyone stay safe out there. People are crazy. Mm -hmm. And protect yourself. Don't feel like you have to be polite if someone is creeping you out. Yeah, don't sacrifice yourself. For the appearance of normalcy, basically, you know? I mean, I'm sure that it feels embarrassing, maybe even, to, like, be in that situation and you don't want people to find out. Because this is obviously a very worst-case scenario, but there are other horror stories out there. You know, protect yourself. So that's the story of Susan Powell. And, yeah, so... Episode three, guys. I'm going to do episode four. We're going to just alternate since our stories end up being so freaking long. <laughs> I'm going to do... I'm just going to go ahead and prep y'all for it. I'm going to do a Scientology Christmas <laughs> spectacular. <laughs> I cannot wait. So originally, Mallory and I were talking about maybe trying to tag team it, but Mallory is the <laughs> expert on Scientology. I've done She's too much. <laughs> literally been talking about it for years. So I'm super excited to hear all about it. Yeah, I'm, I've got a lot floating around up there. I've, I've got to revisit some stuff, though, because I'm sure some of it's been pushed out. But but yeah, so that'll be um, next, next episode. <laughs> yes, so thank you, everyone, for listening. We've been extremely pleased with the... Reception. Yes, with the reception. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just shocked at the amount of people who have listened to us. Like, we have eight people in India who have listened to us. Yeah. If you're still listening, by the way, thank you. And we're on our way. We're very close, I think, at this point to 200 total listens. Yeah. Like, what? (laughs) We only have two episodes out. It's only been less than a month. (laughs) Guys, please interact with us on our social media. We'd love to know that you're listening. Follow us on Instagram at rabbit hole happy hour. We made our first TikTok. Yeah, we did. Yeah. (laughs) Where we're making Manhattans. No, old fashioned. Sorry. (laughs) I always get them mixed up. But yes, we're on TikTok at rabbit hole happy hour. Um, On Twitter at rabbit hole HH pod. And if you ever want to email us with any suggestions or any feedback, feel free at rabbitholehappyhour at gmail.com. And mm-hmm. thank you to everyone who's left us a review. They're so sweet so far. Yes, um, thank can, you so much. If you haven't reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to do that as it <laughs> boosts our self-esteem and makes us want to keep continue uh, yeah. <laughs> making these 
we have a lot of fun doing it and um, we yep. hope that you guys are enjoying it. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just want to throw out a short shout out to my sister. Abby. I forgot to say this in the beginning. <laughs> she has a podcast with her friend Kit. It's called Fringe Theory. Um, they cover exclusively cults and conspiracy theories. I love um, it. Yeah. So they're awesome. They actually, whenever they put out their first episode, it was when I was like, oh my God, we need to do a podcast now. Like, yeah. this, is, this is what we need to do. It's, <laughs> yeah. So. Mallory and I have always been like, oh, we should do a podcast. We would love to do a podcast, but it felt so unattainable. Yeah. And then when we heard that Abby was making a podcast and we listened to it, we were like blown away. I know. I was like, what? This is we good. Like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> Not that I didn't have faith in her, but I was like, I just don't know anybody that has a podcast. So I was like, this is so crazy. <laughs> so if you guys are interested in conspiracies or cults, which yeah. I sure, I'm sure you are since yes. you're listening to us, you should definitely give Kit and Abby a listen. Their podcast is called Fringe Theory. Do it. Well, thanks guys for listening and we hope you have a good day. Day. Bye-bye. Bye.